A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the fighting raging across the Donbass, and Don Nichols answers your questions. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 25th of May, day 91. And today I'm joined by the Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols. Before we get into the fighting in the Donbass, I asked Dom for the other key updates from Ukraine. Well, hi, David, and hi, everybody. It's... uh... I mean, it really is focused on the Donbass. That we're going to talk about it at length in a in a little while. Um, but I mean, that is that is the show in town, and that and that speaks volumes of the fight there, which we'll, which we'll come back to. Russia really are not doing an awful lot else um, because they diverted everything into that area. But we'll come back to that. Just worth noting elsewhere on the sort of political stage, um, we've seen uh, Italy and Hungary uh, urging a truce, urging the EU to push for a truce. But at the same time, Estonia's Prime Minister says that um, that we've got to avoid this. A quote: "Must avoid a bad peace for Ukraine." So these, these uh, we've talked in the past about what is attention, what is healthy debate amongst um, democracies, um, and we've also said that that Vladimir Putin and apologists will love to get in those uh, in those uh, division, small d divisions and try and push them apart. Um, it's a, it's a live debate about about what's happening um, at the moment. I mean, we've seen these articles in. Um, in the New York Times, and we saw Henry Kissinger's comments, and equally we've seen a couple of arguments on the other side of the debate saying, no, 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 there should be absolute defeat. Russia needs to be absolutely defeated. This is we're in the same position as Munich, 1938. Um, so in the Atlantic, two great articles from Anne Applebaum and Elliot Cohen arguing that no, we've got to we've got to defeat um, Russia. Must be seen to be defeated. This is the moment when when um, autocracy needs to learn that there's a limit to uh, to what it what it can do. Um, so yeah, that that debate is very live and um, and ongoing. Um, just briefly elsewhere, uh, Andrei Rudenko, Russia's deputy foreign minister, said that uh, he, he was talking about prisoner swaps, this idea of um, after the uh, after the surrender of the Ukrainian fighters in the Azovstal plant, you know, what's going to happen to them? And he said, well, of course, we talk about prisoner swaps. But he said after, and there's a quote, an appropriate um, uh, appropriate convictions and sentencing. So, yeah, a very loaded term. Um, we know that uh, that Russia are keen to portray the Azov battalion as neo-Nazis and, and harking back after that uh, 
after the part the, they have had a um, a right wing leaning past in some areas. Um, they say that they've expunged that from their ranks now. However, Russia is still very keen to to play that line. So talk of prisoner swaps after an appropriate conviction and sentencing is is concerning. Um, and he was also talking about the humanitarian passage, maritime passage to get grain supplies out of out of Odessa and out of um, out of Ukraine through the Black Sea and out to the world. Again, a subject we've spoken about at length here on the pod um, about what the, the effect this is having on the wider world. And um, and uh, Rodenko was saying, yeah, of course, absolutely. Anything anything's possible there. We'd be delighted to to help Ukraine get its grain supplies out uh, when there's an appropriate accommodation and lowering of, of sanctions against Russia. I mean, it, this is this, this is gangsterism. I mean, they're they're, old, they're threatening with one hand, saying, uh, you know, "Stop, stop making me punch you in the face," type of thing. So it's it's pure gangsterism. I don't think these are these are uh, reasonable or in any way honest um, offers from from Russia to get the grain supply moving again. But it just it's just yet yet again from the from the playbook of making us think that they're going to do one thing. And if we've learned anything from the last few months about Russia. Uh, when it comes to this, it, it's actions. Actions speak much louder than than the words. I just simply don't believe when you say them to my face. I was in Moscow with the defence secretary when um, when uh, Shoigu and Gerasimov were saying no, no, no plans at all to uh, to invade Ukraine, and, and obviously, yeah, look what happened. So actions, not words, please, Mr. Rodenko. Well, let's move on to the Russian offensive in the Donbass. Uh, Ukrainian officials have said that the fate of the country could be decided in the ongoing um, fighting in the region. Um, can we talk a little bit about where are we talking about? What, what's actually in play? So the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine, the Donetsk coal basin, um, which is the, the, the two oblasts, the two regions Ukraine's made up of 24 regions, 24 oblasts, two of them in the east of the country, Luhansk to the north and Donetsk to the south. Um, so the Donbass uh, is the predominantly sort of Russia-leaning area uh, of Ukraine, uh, by no means by no means total. Um, however, since the 2014 invasion, that area uh, has had has been sort of led by by Russian separatist movements, um, People's Republics of Luhansk and, and Donetsk. Now, after the invasion on February 24th, Russia tried to go into the north to try to take, take Kiev in a, a lightning strike, 72-hour strike in the north. Now, obviously, they, they, were, they were pushed back and eventually ejected from the country. And at that point, this is about six weeks ago, at that point, President Putin said, well, that was all a feint. That was just, uh, that was just a diversion. Actually, the, the main effort all along was the Donbass and securing, or in, in his, his words, liberating the Russian-speaking people of the Donbass from the, from the yoke of Ukrainian uh, Nazi rule. Uh, and so they they pushed their forces into the east. Now, at the time, the um, sensible defence analysts were saying, well, OK, it's going to take weeks to, to reconstitute. And, and just to, to briefly reiterate, reconstituting a force means um, regenerating, so fixing the broken people and uh, and equipment uh, and reorganising. So you might say that we, we need these uh, brigades to be more... Uh, armor heavy so more tanks fewer infantry or you might say we need more we need more engineers up front because there's lots of minefields and rivers and what have you so reorganizing your forces takes time because it's not it's not just about telling telling soldier a to get on and work work well with soldier b they've got to train they've got to practice together they've got to understand each other's strengths and weaknesses i mean down to how fast your vehicles go so when i'm in the attack when i'm in the advance assaulting an enemy position are you physically going to be able to keep up with me? Um, I mean, the, our, our challenger 
and Chieftain tanks were able to go about the same speed as Warrior, which was, which was quite helpful, about uh, 20 miles an hour across broken ground, much faster on, on hard ground. And, and you, you have to have that when, you, when you're in the assault. You can't have your tanks going ahead of the infantry and, and vice versa. So all these really sort of low-level low level, um, bits and pieces need to be worked out, and you can't just launch straight into a fight. But that's what we saw Russia do. They, they, um, they wanted a victory. We thought May the 9th was going to be um, a significant date, the day of... Moscow's Victory Day Parade, uh, the annual event marking the um, victory over Nazi Germany in the Second World War. So we thought May the 9th was going to be significant. And it, it seems to have been such that they, they then sort of threw forces into the Donbass uh, without a proper time to reconstitute. So so tired fighters, tired equipment, broken equipment, broken structures. Um, and they uh, and they met the same staunch resistance as they had before from, from Ukraine. And um, in the last couple of weeks, they've, they've been largely ejected from the north and northeast of uh, Kharkiv, U- Ukraine's second city, um, certainly pushed right to the edge of, if not beyond, artillery range. So so Kharkiv has been absolutely pounded for the three months of this war. And a lot of that was from this really heavy, heavy artillery just raining down on civilians. And so to be able to push those forces back and in some places to the border uh, was very significant by Ukraine. And I, I think that was largely um, down to them able to knit together very small counter counterattacks that could kind of blend into one big counteroffensive, if you like. Um, but Russia just weren't able to, to, to resist that. Their, their forces were tired. And we've seen that to a greater degree in the, in the Donbass. They've not been advancing in anything like the rate that you would expect a a fully swept up modern well trained well equipped well led army to to do i mean they've been they've been creeping forward at about a mile a day um and uh, so, this, so in the last few days we're talking about this the, the pocket of severodonetsk this is this um a major city in in the donbass held by ukraine that is in danger of encirclement and looks like it will be encircled in the next few days but this is a major um, a, a major reduction in ambition even after russia said that the donbass was their was their main objective i mean we th- we we thought they were going to draw a line south from kharkiv and north from mariupol and sort of sweep down in some massive encirclement operation and and then slowly attrit the ukrainian forces inside that they've not been able to do that so they they've gone for these much smaller encirclements um and as i say inching forward uh or you know mile, mile after mile per day. So this hasn't been some huge breakthrough in the Donbass. Um, it's been done because they are they are doing what they should have been doing, combined arms manoeuvre. So the infantry working with the tanks, working with the engineers, working with um, aviation, so helicopters and, and air, um, to achieve results. But it's it's only been in the last sort of 10 days or so, it's really started to, to get gain any momentum. And, um, and that is about six weeks after they were rejected from the north. So it's, it would suggest that G- uh, General uh, Alexander Dvornikov, who was put in overall command of Russia's war effort, uh, seems to have, after the ejection from the north, seems to have sort of tried to tried to keep his boss quiet, keep Putin quiet by saying, "Okay, fine, we'll, we'll go, we'll roll straight into the Donbass," and and they've been mauled. But at the same time, he does seem to have have given some time to his formations underneath underneath his command to to reconstitute properly. And I think that's what we've seen in the last 10 days. But it's still nothing like the, the, the advance um, they, should have been, they should have been making. Um, we can talk wise and the wherefores about that and what might come next um, uh, in a moment.
Before we went, thanks, Tom. Before we went on air, you were speaking a little bit about the uh, some insights you had about the Russian equipment, uh, specifically the tanks. Do you want to go into that? What they, obviously we've known since the beginning of the war, the Russian army has been losing a, a huge number of armored vehicles and and tanks, and they are really starting to scrape the barrel in terms of in terms of the things they're putting on the battlefield. Yeah. So all through this campaign, we have seen um, Ukrainian forces work brilliantly well in these small anti-tank teams so supplied by uh, anti-tank weapons many from mainly from outside the country i think they wore through their stocks pretty quickly but you've had the u.s javelin the um, anglo-swedish produced enlaw uh, the next generation light anti-tank weapon and others as well from, from other countries have all, have all been rushed into theater pushed into theater um, and these have been hugely effective at um, destroying armored vehicles in particular tanks um, and we've seen in the last few days that that I mean Russia has thousands of tanks in deep storage. I mean most most armies do. I mean, British army we've got uh, Lugashaw just on Salted Plain. We've got um, warehouses full of old old chieftains covered in covered in grease, ready to go at a moment's notice. As long as that moment is about a year, um, so they've got all these all these tanks in storage. And and we've just seen images in the last couple of days of T T sixty two tanks being put on. Uh, trains and uh, and push towards ukraine and this on the one hand you know, it's not good that they've got they've got access to um, a lot more heavy metal but let's have a look at the t62 it is as the name suggests it was kind of designed in the uh, you know about 60 years ago it was actually designed in the 50s um came into service in in the 60s and this is this is old stuff it's old old technology um so if and when they break I mean, are we, are they still making spare parts for T-62s? I doubt it. They've probably all been, the ones that are able to go forward have all been can- cannibalised from others in stock. Um, and the main armament, the main armament is 115 mil. Um, so still, you know, it still makes a big bang when it when it arrives at you. But um, it's different from the 125 mil of the T-72 80s and 90s that they've also been, or they've mainly been using. So what does that mean? Well, Think of the logistic chains for that. Think of your 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 commander of logistics. He's got he's got all this stuff to keep one nature of of equipment going, and then he's just been asked to to look after another one as well. It's like having a rental car company that deals in Ford, and you've got everything set up for Ford, and you've got all your spare parts for Ford, and then someone says, "Oh, and I want you to look after this uh, this massive batch of Toyota as well." I mean, it's it's a huge burden on the logistic chain, and and we've seen just as Ukraine have been have been very good at um, these anti tank teams actually destroying the tanks they've been they've also been really good uh, having the confidence to allow tank columns to come past them so they they can then attack the logistic columns behind and so we've seen those tanks that have survived some have run out of fuel others have just just broken down um and hence we've seen all these images of ukrainian farmers you know dragging these things away off the battlefield um you know to to, to great great effect i mean the, the numbers are staggering in terms of the losses so the fact that we're now seeing T-62 pushed into the fight, I think, speaks volumes about the state of the Russian war machine. Um, and let's not forget, who's going to crew these things? It's very, very rare that a tank gets uh, gets knocked out by an anti-tank weapon and the crew survive. You know, the, the, it's normally um, an unsurvivable event if a, if a Okay, so some of them are breaking down, and and um, the crew are getting off and, and running back and fine. So they can they can go and jump in another tank, but an anti tank round that, that comes in through generally through the turret of um, of a Russian tank, we've seen time and time again it's setting off the ammunition inside. 
Russian tanks have a have a, a carousel, an auto loader, a carousel of ammunition and and uh, and rounds. So it's largely exposed. In Western tanks, we have them under under um, sort of armoured uh, charge bins. So there is some protection should there be a sudden a sudden arrival of of high explosive into the turret from from the sides or above or below. Um, Whereas in Russia, we've seen these the, a lot of turrets being blown off the, the tanks, and that's because the ammunition inside has suddenly gone up. So, so the anti-tank round comes in. It's normally a, a jet of, 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 of molten copper going at about um, two or 3,000 uh, miles an hour, and it just blasts through any armour that, that's in its way. And the sudden increase in pressure uh, and, and temperature brought about by that jet will set off the ammunition that's inside the tank. And so it's not the actual anti-tank round that's caused these turrets to pop off it's the it's the effect on all the ammunition inside that suddenly then ignites and we see the um the the the, the t-72 turret throwing competition um all over all over ukraine so th- this is these these tanks are are not going to be crewed by experienced um tankies probably they will be younger um possibly conscript um service personnel put into these T62s they are they probably not worked much together they've probably certainly not worked alongside other tanks to any great degree and they haven't worked alongside all the other arms all the other bits and pieces of the combined arms orchestra to make it work so yeah we see T62 going in um and i i, I say that's yeah that's not great because it's extra tanks but equally we just got to look at well, what what does that mean and what's the likely effect going to be um yeah, I'll just take a pause there. Thanks, Don. That was again, again, that was hugely in depth. I think just what we needed. Just thinking about um, the personnel. I mean, you mentioned there that they'll have potentially even conscripts uh, crewing tanks. Um, the, the one of the qualities of the Battle for the Donbass at the moment in the last few days is that it it, it seems to be inc- incredibly fierce uh, and and uh, vicious fighting um, in the region. Could you give a sense of what that would feel like to a sort of normal infantryman, um, potentially a conscript? What what are the sights and sounds? What 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 would they be seeing around them? How would they know where to get their orders from? Would they be aware of the um, of the of the greater strategy at play? Or as an infantryman, are you just you know, stuck in your in, in in your foxhole and told to retreat, told to advance? And most most of the day, you just hear a, a, a ton of artillery. What, what what might it be like for the soldiers out there? Yeah, so most of the time, um, operations and combat is is fairly dull. Combat is is large periods of not a lot happening, punctuated by short short moments of absolute terror, and and so it's largely routine. And it's amazing that that you can find humour in these moments because it just becomes a, a routine. You look at your ration packs and it's go, oh, what have we got today? Oh, the same old thing again, and 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 this drags on for ages, and then operations kick off and uh and you'll hear a lot of soldiers say oh the train the training just kicked in which is which is good you want the train to kick in you want someone to have had a lot of training for it to be able to kick in because when in the in the intense moments when you're under the most stress um it 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 largely comes down to as as far as you can see so you might have you will be given your orders from above, and depending how high up the the military chain you are, you'll have a, you'll have sort of an, an awareness or an interest in in the the bigger picture, and that sort of boils right down to um, when you're in your your small section or your individual tank or what have you, you 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 might have an idea about the the much bigger 
the bigger idea. But really, you're looking at the piece of real estate in front of you and you're dealing with the immediate immediate problem to your front. Um, and it can be really intense. It's confusing. It's shocking. Um, it's very, very noisy. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't smell good because it's battlefield obscurance. It's all that's... Um, it, it's, it's not. It's a, it's a very alien environment. So the, the closer that's able to be replicated in in training, um, the better. I mean, the, in the British Army, elsewhere, I'm sure have the same this expression of, of train hard, fight easy. Um, never really comes down to that, to be perfectly honest. But but you want you want the hard bits um, or, or sufficiently hard bits to be done in training, so that when you then make that extra step up to combat, it's not such a leap that you are overwhelmed you are that you know, you're physically you, uh, you're, you're physically f- frozen and psychologically frozen you've got to be able to keep keep thinking and communicating and uh, and, um, and keep an awareness of what of what's going on around you so it will be it'll be chaotic um it would largely come down to um, shouting to each other certainly in the urban environment radio communications don't work brilliantly well in in built up areas and uh, and rubberized cities so it largely comes down to word of mouth and shouting, um, and and it becomes it becomes a very low level battle. This is why you need a, a professional, dedicated, um, motivated, um, non commissioned officer corps um, for for all the for all the value officers bring and planners, staff planners, and headquarters and all the rest of it. You need that that spine, that that that, that stiffened resolve of the NCOs, the sergeants, the corporals, the the warrant officers. They're actually giving giving um, sucker and confidence to the people around them, um, and being able to keep their head. Uh, the, the wise old bead, the wise old bead who may only be in his mid thirties, but you know the the wise old head that will keep the keep the young bucks in in check when um, when all they want to do is 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 curl up and and hide. So the more you have that professional army. The more you have that professional core of um, of NCOs, then the then the stronger a, a military will be, stronger the army will be, and I think we've seen from from what we've seen in um, coming out of Butcher and Irpin in the Kiev suburbs, Russia just don't have that that discipline. They don't have that um, that sort of humanity, such that when it comes to uh, <coughs> when push comes to shove on the battlefield. They're just not able to maintain that resolve. It seems to be slightly different from from the Ukrainian side. However, the more they are relying on on um, civilians or uh, sort of civilian militia, then the less they have all these these sort of values um, and these characteristics and this training inculcated in them. So, so it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a um, they can balance each other out. Russia have great numbers of largely. Of largely ill-disciplined and poorly trained people, Ukraine have much much smaller numbers of people, but they're they're highly motivated, fighting for their own, fighting for their homeland, which which um, and steel to the sinew. Um, but they are they are very small in number. Just a, a final um, one final question on that, because one of the interesting things, of course, about about the battle for the Donbass is it's we think primarily an artillery war with the Russians creeping forward slowly behind um, their heavy artillery. And as you said um, before, the success of the Ukrainian armed forces in the north has been to push the Russian artillery back so that they couldn't shell um, Kharkiv. Has there been much um, military experience across Europe since the Second World War, really, of of that kind of vast artillery barrage, that that kind of fighting? And 
I, I imagine it's quite difficult to train for that, no? That if, if this hasn't, you know, I, I imagine you can do training for urban combat, but how do you, what, what's the psychological, how, how do you prepare psychologically for being under fire, under heavy artillery for day after day, week after week? Well, I mean, it's very difficult is, is the short answer. I mean, the thing about artillery is that they've always said that the, the most casualties occur in the first 10 seconds. It's that, it's that shock of having this high explosive arrive on your, on your position before you're able to, to take cover. Um, and just the psychological impact of that, let alone the, the, the physical degradation that, that a force would, would um, experience. But it's very, very difficult to, to train for that, that shock. I mean, this is why a lot, of, um, a lot of military training involves flashbangs, so grenades that just create, create um, sort of noise and, uh, and, and maybe you know, a big, big flash and possibly smoke grenades and, and what have you to try and, to try and instill in you all the, all the, the, the shock that you'd experience. Um, because it... I mean, we've all seen it. We've all, we've all jumped when, you know, in normal everyday life, let alone military experience. But but it it can it can seize you. It can overtake. You can be overtaken by these these unexpected and un, unwanted emotions uh, and feelings. Um, and it's easy. Uh, it's very human to uh, to then un, unknowingly retreat into into our sort of caveman stance and want to look after yourself and crawl into a a smaller ball as possible and, and get out of the way of, of the, the nasty big noisy thing in front of you so it's to overcome that is is not natural and that's why you have to try and replicate these this this shocking environment in training such that it you are not um, you're not paralyzed when it comes to, it comes to the day of the race but it is very very difficult to do we've seen nothing on this scale in in Europe since the Second World War. I mean, the, the wars in the Balkans d- did contain artillery. There was artillery fire, um, and they were they were nasty, brutal wars. Um, but nothing on this scale. I mean, we, ha- we have to look to, to the to Gulf One in the early 90s, um, to a certain extent Gulf Two, 2003, to, to get anything on, on this scale. But, but, but even then, I think, um, I think it would be going some. Gulf One, almost certainly, but... Uh, but no, there's been nothing like this in, in mainland Europe uh, since the Second World War. So before we move on to some questions from our listeners, um, can I just ask you to, to talk about how you think that this battle for the Donbass is going to change in the next few days? What, what should our listeners be listening out for? Um, what, what, what are the big moments that will decide um, what, what happens in the next week? So it looks likely that uh, the city of Severodonetsk will be encircled um, the town to the south of Papazhna, uh, Russia have pushed west from there and are looking as if they, they, they might link up um, or push through a town called Lyman to the north, north of Papazhna. So this is west of Severodonetsk. And that would seal off that, 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 little, uh, that little pocket, um, that Severodonetsk salient, as we've been referring to. That would mean the whole of the Luhansk oblast, the, the northernmost oblast of the Donbass, is in Russian control. Um, and I think at that point there will be a a pause. I think there will be there will be a a desire, maybe even a demand from Putin to to push west as far as far as possible, get to the Dnieper River, the river that runs north south through through Ukraine and largely splits splits the country in half. Um, but Russia just simply won't be able to do it. Their, their, their forces will be exhausted. They haven't got the personnel. They're having to widen the age of of conscription in uh, in Russia to to bring up more manpower. Um, so I think they will they will culminate. Culmination is a military term, which means when you, you can no longer carry on offensive action, it doesn't mean that you're being pushed back. 
um, but it means you can't go forward. So they will transition onto the defence. They will start dig- physically digging in, and as we've seen around the south, around Kazan, they will um, they will try to start f- physically building emplacements, defensive positions. Um, but I, I think any attempt to try and push west quickly will be will, will not be possible. Uh, I think they will they will need another few weeks of of reconstitution again, that, that reorganisation and. Um, and rest and recuperation before they can do major combat operations again. Um, there is a chance, bearing in mind that Putin's war aims shifted. He originally wanted the whole country to you know, denazify and get rid of all the drug dealers and whatever else he came up with. Um, then changed to the Donbass and the, the Russian-speaking people there you know, need, need liberation. So if he was able to take Luhansk and maybe even the rest of the Donetsk oblast... Yeah, there is a chance you might say, right now, let now let's uh, go into negotiations. Of course, they will only both sides will only go into negotiations unless they have to. They will only choose to go into negotiations when they feel that they have a they're in a strong position and they feel they will get more from negotiating than they will by fighting. So you might find that at that point, Putin says well, we should we should negotiate, uh, and that's when all these issues that I mentioned right at the very start about these these ideas about what do you do you cede land for peace or do you say no no we've got to keep fighting this is the the future of um this is going to this is going to point the way for the 22nd 21st century do you keep fighting so i think there's a there's a possibility i think there will be a, a pause but i don't think that will be out of choice i think i think russia will want to keep pressing west i don't think there will be serious noises about negotiations um i think um ukraine who have shown themselves very able and willing confident to to give up land in order to fight on a better in a better time and place of their choosing as harsh as it is to give up some uh, towns and villages that you know are going to be pulverized and 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 probably brutalized by the russian forces but i, I think they they have shown a, a, a resolve to do that so i think at that point i think if if there's um if russia are able to take this salient then there will be a pause whilst both sides take stock because Ukraine are losing a lot of people as well losing equipment and and personnel um and i think that that at that point it would be very interesting to see what these calls are from the from the west to see if these these noises from sort of Italy Hungary and and others um to go for negotiations whether or not they start to to really bed in um or whether the the counter to that mainly from sort of Poland and the US and UK and Nordic, Scandinavian countries, Baltics, um, to say, no, we will keep supplying, we will keep training, we will keep providing humanitarian aid and money to keep the, to keep Ukraine in the fight. I think there'll be a pause there and then and then the politics will will sort of point the next uh, point the way for the next chapter. Well, thanks for that summary. Let's have a look at some listener questions. We've got a question, I, I believe it's from Bo, about uh, drones. And she she talks about watching um uh, listening sorry listening to a feature on <clears throat> drone operators in Afghanistan and this a re- bit of a revelation that drones can be operated from um so far away that you know you 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 can control a a drone flying over flying over enemy territory from a base you know 6000 miles away um her question then is um would it be possible for other countries to secretly assist ukraine through drone operation and how would would russia know that was happening and do you think that would be a possibility yeah okay so um bo thanks for the question so th- these these drones that we're talking about the big strategic drones like reaper predator um these the the, the big ears that were armed with anti tank weapons um they are 
Uh, when the US largely largely controlled out of Creech Air Force Base in Nevada, in the UK they come, they're flown out of RAF Waddington, Lincoln, Lincolnshire. These are these are uh, satellite controlled um, airframes. They do have to have a launch and recovery element um, and a ground control station near the theatre. So they they can't take take off and land themselves. The, the ones coming in at the moment, the Reaper replacement that uh, in the UK we're going to be calling. Uh, protector, but it comes up goes under different names. General Atomics um, make Reaper and make this this air vehicle as well, but we're going to call it Protector. Um, and these uh, these aircraft can can take off, so they can be con- controlled from from your your base, and they can take take off and then come back to conduct their mission and come back, all without this ground control element in theatre. Um, but what they what they they are good at is is they have long loiter times and they so they can stay aloft for for hours on end days on end and have weapons on board obviously the more weapons you have the 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 shorter your loiter time is but they are they are very very big they can they can see a lot they've got great cameras uh, and they can do a lot about about a problem if they see one but but they're looking through a drinking straw so they have no great situational awareness they can see they can pinpoint stuff on the ground they have to be put onto it by other other intelligence assets but they can they can see a, a spot on the ground but that's about it they don't they don't have great wide area visibility some drones do with synthetic area um, radars they can sort of take take a view of the, of the ground through through clouds and other obscurants but but the but the kind of armed drones they, they can't they, they need need a clear day to be able to see what's what's going on and then they've got no defensive aid so i mean they they can be spotted they have small radar cross sections but they can be spotted nonetheless and they can be shot down they don't they don't have any um any weapons on them for their own self-protection so even though um they are they are very capable they need a permissive air environment to be able to operate i.e you don't want anyone shooting back at you essentially is what that means so it would be very un unwise to the point that it you know, unlikely it, it's just not going to happen that the us and uk would would secretly fly these things over over ukraine um to assist in the fight against against russian tanks because firstly as i say the ones in service at the moment have to be launched from nearby so they they would be seen um and secondly the chances of them being one of them being shot down or just crashing and the and the the um propaganda gold mine that would offer to to russia to say this is this is nato taking a direct a direct part in the fight it's just it just would not be would not be worth it um and what they're able to do the these the drones uh, is is being conducted by you know very effectively by ukrainian anti-tank teams at the moment so yeah every little bit helps but i i just don't think um it would be worth it certainly wouldn't be worth the political risk and i think it would add very little militarily to try and get these uh try and get these things in there um to in a in an anti-tank role if you like now having said that so i'll just i'll just finish this dave by saying that if you if you look at flight tracker radars such as flight radar 24 and there's loads of others out there you know you can see around the borders on the on the nato borders you can see all sorts of nato nato aircraft doing laps um circuits up and down having a having a good look inside good look inside um ukraine and and russia and belarus um so you'll be able to see that there are a lot of aircraft active and um and i mean they they have said the british mod and the pentagon have have said that they are they are you know working with ukrainian ukrainian partners so i think there's there's a lot of um airborne assets that are being 
if not made available to Ukraine, then certainly the product from those assets are being are being used uh, by Ukraine. Um, not weapons, but certainly the, the intelligence that's derived from the platforms. Well, thank you both very much for your question. And thanks, Dom, for your answer. We've got one from Steve here. Um, again, I think I think we've sort of You've touched on it in a couple of your answers, but it might, might be nice to bring bring some ideas together. He asks, <clears throat> from the Ukrainian perspective, what could they do strategically next? What's their best approach to winning the war? Where are the Russians most vulnerable and how could that vulnerability be best exploited? Yeah, I mean, winning is such a loaded term. On the, on the, on the, at the base level, you mean defeat the opposition, push them out of, push them out of your territory. Um, I mean, that's, that's very hard for... Ukraine to do um, so in terms of of a more of a political win if you like you know we've said how Russia has already already lost this war in terms of they've been made Putin's made made himself and his country global pariahs they've been cut off from the international landscape I mean they're kept alive because they are massive energy exporters um, but but really it's going to be it's going to be a long time before Russia is brought back into the international fold. Uh, interesting comments from Henry Kissinger the other day saying, don't forget, Russia's a great power, you know, pivotal to European security. I wonder if that's going to change in light of in light of what's happened here. But in terms of what Ukraine can do, I mean, I mean simply staying in the fight has been astounding and has, uh, has made, uh, if it's not made Russia think again, it will certainly have raised questions in the minds of I would have thought the Chinese leadership as they look at Taiwan um, looking at this surprising um, surprisingly coherent international resolve against this brutality I think that will give autocrats pause for thought the way that the military uh, in terms of supplying weapons to Ukraine was knitted together with the diplomacy and the economics and the societal support, I think that has come as a surprise to to, to many, and not, and not just in not just in Russia and China. I think it's come as a surprise to, to many other people as well. Um, so, in, what can Ukraine do to win? It depends what you mean by winning, and I don't I don't mean to fudge fudge the question here. Um, but if you, if you take it as pushing Rush, all Russian troops off their soil, so completely out of Ukraine and out of Crimea, that they need a lot more people in their armed forces a lot a lot better trained and they need a lot more equipment all of which takes time so i'm not saying we're not we're not there and i'm not saying there isn't the resolve to do that but it will take it will take years to train a force you're basically building a building an army um to be able to do that in the short term i think the supply of of very sophisticated munitions from the west is um I mean, it's it's holding. It's certainly helping to to hold the Russians back in some areas, and and even push them back. Uh, it was the it was the resolve and the fighting spirit that 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 pushed Russia out of the north of the country and around Kharkiv. But um, but the supply of arms, were, although secondary, was still very very important. So that needs to continue. Um, Western powers need to decide if they're in it for the long term, as Poland. And US and UK to a lesser degree, but certainly Poland have come out and said, "Yep, we're we're not we're not going anywhere." Um, I think the the more that the, that those countries are able to stand up and be counted, the uh, the more chance there is of this of this. If it, even if it does degrade into or does move to negotiations, then the chances of of going back to the pre February the twenty fourth 
borders. So with the Russian separatist movements in in power in uh, in the in the east of the Donbass, um, that would be a um, that would be a a loss for Putin. That would be seen as a military defeat for him. So if it's not too if I'm not too, being too much like a politician and trying to change the question slightly and say, instead of winning, what would imposing defeat look like? I think that would be a defeat for Putin. If he was forced to accept the, the where the line of control was on February the 23rd, um, albeit that included Crimea, I think that would be counted as as a defeat for Putin and ergo a victory for Ukraine. Thanks, Tom. And just a final question from Iris. Um, she asked this a few days ago, but I think it's probably a good idea to bring it up. Oh, she, she's asking about um, POWs, so prisoners of war. Um, do we know much more about the treatment, uh, the number, where they are, or, or, of both sides? Can, can we say much yet? I mean, obviously, the fog of war is, is descended in the Donbass. But what, what can we say about the situation of the, of the prisoners of war on both sides? Well, we don't know a huge amount. Um, I mean, it's, it's loaded with uh, legal implications. So you, we've got to be, we journalists have to be very, very careful about about um, asking too much or, or, or trying to interview prisoners of war, trying to get access to them and, and so on and so forth. The organisation that does is the International Committee of the Red Cross um, under the Geneva Conventions, the ICRC, can have access, uh, unfettered access and, and un, unmonitored access to prisoners of war, um, they have said they have done that on at least one occasion for the, the Ukrainian soldiers that came out of the Azovstal plant. Um, they were taken, if you may remember, the wounded soldiers were taken about about 10 k's further east along the coast to to another area, um, still in in Russian separatist held part of of Ukraine. But they were they were held there in a in a hospital, and all the other fighters were taken about 50 k's north near to uh, Donetsk city itself. So still not in Russia proper, but taken to uh, to camps there where they were visited by ICRC. So we we don't know. Um, exact numbers on either side and we don't know if if um, and how many have been taken back to 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 russia proper the only real comment we had was um as i mentioned earlier on from um, deputy foreign minister andre rodenko who's saying about we're talking about prisoner swaps after an appropriate time of um appropriate number of, of convictions and sentencing um so that was the first time we've heard anything from from russia um from ukraine side we've seen the um we saw the 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 trial of um of the Russian soldier who who shot the 62-year-old Ukrainian man. I mean, I, I'm looking at my notes here, and I've, I'm looking at the guy's name, but he, his name is known to history, but he doesn't deserve to be remembered. So I'm not going to say his name. The man he killed was Alexander Shelopov. He, his name does deserve to be remembered. So I'm sorry if it's a bit a bit stunted here, but but I, I'm very conscious. I, I don't like to repeat the, the names of the perpetrators because they just need to uh, shuffle off into history, and we should remember the victims. But... He was put under, um, under put into a court of, into a court process under the rule of law. Now, you know, Russia will say, "Well, that was all, that was completely biased." Um, you can decide decide for yourself. I personally think that the the um, the court proceedings were uh, appropriate, and he was handed down a life sentence. So that was uh, in relation to alleged war crimes, and that process is ongoing. And the UN are very heavily involved on the ground investigating war crimes. And so there may be some more of those trials, 
But in terms of, of, of prisoners of war camps as well, uh, we, don't, we don't know the exact nature of them, the, the locations and numbers, but they should, if they're adhering to the Geneva Conventions, as they, as they should do, then, um, then they should be um, well outside the combat zone. They should be free from, from abuse and degra- um, degrading treatment, um, dehumanising treatment. They should be um, fed and watered to the same degree as the guards looking after them. Um, and, uh, and yes, they should be they, given unfettered access by the ICRC. Well, thank you very much, Dom, and thank you, Iris uh, Crofty, for that uh, question. Um, I think we've probably come to the end of our time. Dom, thank you so much for your time. You've really um, held, held this, these last 45 minutes up on your, your own two shoulders, an atlas of, of knowledge and, and um, analysis there. Um, do you have any final uh, thoughts to leave our listeners with? To look for what, what should they be looking for over the next few days? Well, I'd just say, I mean, we're talking about the 7X pocket as if it's, as if it's uh, inevitable that it's going to, it's going to collapse. Um, I mean, we said this about Mariupol, and okay, I know Mariupol is no, there are no Ukrainian forces there anymore. But, but I mean, it took it took months before that fell. And and what the forces, Ukrainian forces in the in this salient, in the Severodonetsk salient, are doing now is is holding up Russia. A, a mile a day is is woeful for for a for a military. Um, and whilst they are advancing, you've always got to bear in mind the relative cost. If they are having to um, increase the bracket of age group for people that can be called up into the Russian army. If they're having to dig T-62 tanks out of the sheds and fill them full of full of barely trained fighters, I mean, this does not speak well for them. And the longer that the Ukrainian forces can, can hold onto that pocket, the more they are wearing these forces down. And so I think there will be... You've got to keep an eye on, on that. And I, and I think what happens after that will will speak volumes about the next chapter in this war. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Phil Atkins. And today on Twitter, Sophie Coe. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.